Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. We've got a special episode for you today. Brad, what are we talking about? A few days ago, not even 48 hours ago, uh, the popular podcast host, Joe Rogan, had Robert F. Kennedy Jr., known as RFK Jr., who recently announced that he is running for president on the Rogan podcast. They proceeded to discuss a whole manner of issues related to public health, well-being, what we might even consider excellence in performance. And that podcast was filled with um, a copious amount of very enticing misinformation. And uh, I woke up this morning on Sunday when we're recording after my digital Sabbath. Thank God I wasn't online yesterday. I just would have been aggravated to see that on the internet, the topics trending were vaccine, mRNA, Joe Rogan, RFK Jr. And um, we are in the space of health, well-being, performance, longevity, My formal background is as a public health person. I'm actually on faculty at a very prestigious public health institution, the University of Michigan. And um, we just felt that it was worth having a quick conversation to clear up some of the noise for well-meaning people that might just be confused by all of this. Absolutely. So let's set the stage very quickly. And I don't want to spend too much time on the conspiracies, but I think the background is important. Is first, RFK, this isn't just what I'd call the new COVID like vaccine stuff. RFK is one of the guys who, you know, during the gosh, late 1990s, early 2000s, latched onto the vaccine and autism um, kind of thing. But what we now know is 20 years later, research, we've had 20 years of research, like the connection just isn't there. And RFK still holds on to that belief. So he's what I'd call like a OG, you know, anti-vaxxer. But it's not just that. It's conspiracies on Wi-Fi causing cancer. It's conspiracies on HIV and AIDS. It's conspiracies on 5G. There's all sorts of stuff around here. And I think what we want to get around here, get at is, you know, A, kind of why this is taking place right now, and then B, kind of just address kind of science and defend the practice of science and and medicine and how it works and how it's not perfect, but it's, you know, one of the best ways or the best way we have right now to find capital T truth and course correct along the way. So with that being said, Brad, I'll turn it over to you as the expert. All right. So let's start with the Joe Rogan podcast, which gets anywhere from 20 to 30 million downloads, I believe. So lots of people are listening to this. And I do think it is extremely reasonable for a well-meaning person to be very confused by what's going on. Well, why would somebody be confused? And there's a couple of reasons. The first is that when these vaccines first came out, there were many promises made about stopping the transmission of the coronavirus. And those promises were over promises. It's very clear that while vaccination reduces your likelihood of getting the coronavirus, it certainly does not stop this. We know because there is a fair amount of transmission of the virus from one vaccinated person to another. 
Reduction is powerful, but again, we were led to believe that these vaccines would stop the virus from spreading. And that just hasn't been the case. What has been the case is that these vaccines have drastically reduced morbidity, which is just fancy science speak for the burden of disease, how severe the virus is, as well as mortality, which is the chance that you are going to die. And I think that the best statistic that we have for this ironically, is one of the statistics that the anti-vax crowd puts forward often. So you'll often hear that, well, if the vaccines work so well, how come the same number of people that are vaccinated are dying of the virus versus the same number of people that aren't vaccinated? And on its face, that's like, huh, that's kind of perplexing. But then you think about it and you realize that upwards of 70% of the population is vaccinated, and only about 30% is not fully vaccinated, probably less. And then you look at age, which is a real risk factor, and you see that about 90% of the elderly population is currently vaccinated. So the fact that the same number of people are dying that were vaccinated versus aren't is a great endorsement for the vaccine, because if you've got 250 million people that are vaccinated and only 30 million that aren't, Well, guess what? Like the per capita death rate is a whole lot lower in vaccinated people. And we see this over and over and over again in the data. Now, I said well-meaning people can be confused because what does Joe Rogan and what does RFK Jr. say? Well, how can we trust big pharma? Look at the opioid crisis, very much still unfolding, not even in our rearview mirror yet. The opioid crisis was really perpetuated at the hands of big pharma. And they say, well, how can you have profit-driven companies telling us to take this vaccine that's going to make them a ton of money? And I'm very sympathetic to the argument, so much so that my own personal philosophy is that the majority, if not all, of drug development should be done by the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Administration, by the government. So you follow that logic, and you tell someone like Joe Rogan or RFK, hey, I agree, for-profit companies shouldn't be doing drug development. The government should. Well, what would they say? The government? Are you kidding me? Big government. So where does this lead? It leads to trying to get quote unquote natural immunity boost through supplements that are created in somebody's garage in Murray, Utah, where there is absolutely no regulation. So the system that we have, it is very imperfect, but it is the best that we have and it is self-correcting. And just because the pharmaceutical industry led us to pretty significant failure in the opioid crisis, does not discount all of the incredible wins of the pharmaceutical industry, and even beyond this, the science industrial complex. Vaccination for MMNR and for the coronavirus, because the data is irrefutable, it works. Public health sanitation and sewage. Listeners, have you ever gotten surgery? Have you ever had strep throat and not died from it because you took antibiotics? Reduction in cholesterol, statins, fluoride for your teeth. All these things were developed at the hands of so-called big pharma. So it is very easy to sow doubt. But if the solution to that small amount of doubt is take the profit motive out of pharmaceutical companies, then you end up with the government doing everything, which these people are even more against. So that is the contradiction and the hypocrisy. 
And I'll say one more thing about the government doing everything, because I think this is like a really interesting argument that thoughtful people can have. And then Steve, you could bring us back on topic. So the number one reason that people think that we should have pharmaceutical companies is because they believe that competition driven by a profit motive is really good for innovation. And that is a very valid argument, right? That's kind of the argument that capitalism rests on. The counterpoint and the view that I've become more sympathetic to over time is that most scientists get into science because they love discovery and they love science. And within the scientific community, more so than wanting to become filthy rich, scientists want status. They want to win a Nobel Prize. They want to be recognized by their colleagues. So if I had my druthers, I think that the outcomes would be better if instead of having whatever it is, six, seven huge profit-driven companies competing against each other, holding their own secrets, we just had one national body of research and drug development. So instead of seven companies working on their own seven Alzheimer's drugs with their own secrets, all that information was shared. Now, this is a very interesting debate, and there are many reasons to take both sides of it. So I digress a little, but my point is to simply say that we can't trust profit-driven pharma companies without then endorsing full-fledged government-run drug development, while at the same time on your show advertising all these batshit crazy supplements that are truly, me and Steve can make a supplement. We could put some sugar and urine in a pill and call it the performance-enhancing growth equation pill, and we could sell it at CVS within a few months. So how can you possibly be for that but think that the government and big pharma are in cahoots. Like it is such a dysfunctional worldview. And it's not surprising that RFK Jr. is spouting this because RFK Jr. got into the presidential race because Steve Bannon said he'd be a great chaos agent. Now, I wouldn't be talking about this and I wouldn't be giving this any steam if 25 to 35 million people aren't listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. So it's a real clusterfuck that we find ourselves in. Excuse my French. (laughs) So thanks for outlining that, Brad. And I want to highlight something on that big pharma is, you know, one of the reasons we know that, yes, big pharma, as you pointed out, has screwed up and isn't perfect. And, you know, the incentives don't always align. Um, But one of the reasons we know this is is kind of just a boogeyman in this case to create a other is because if you look at in the RFK Jr., Joe Rogan, what they've also done is they've challenged Peter Hotez to uh, a debate with RFK Jr. And you look at Hotez, what did he do during COVID besides kind of spread, you know, information from his expertise? He helped develop a no-patent, low-cost vaccine to spread, you know, to essentially poorer countries. He is the exact opposite of Big Pharma, because he's not trying to make a profit. He's not saying, hey, here's the here's the patent. Let's sell it to Big Pharma so we can make a ton of money. He did the opposite of that. But he's pointed out as like this kind of villain to debate who's anti-everything. And in the podcast, RFK Jr. and Rogan on have, you know, attacked him, even though he's again the opposite of this boogeyman of Big Pharma that they, you know, profess against. So I think that right there tells you that the 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 like idea isn't actually like big pharma it just it just serves as a useful narrative in that that space 
So now on the topic of vaccines, a couple of other things that you would have to believe if you thought that these vaccines were harming people. The first is you would have to believe that there is an international conspiracy across the entire scientific community on all seven continents and their local drug developers that are all in cahoots perpetuating this. You'd have to believe that every regulatory body is also in cahoots. And you would have to believe that all the data that we have on COVID, as well as all the firsthand accounts of the people that are in emergency departments and intensive care units treating COVID are made up and false to get you. Versus some people that are interested in building a platform and chasing fame and attention coming up with their own conspiracies for those very reasons. So generally, if it looks like a horse and smells like a horse and moves like a horse and isn't striped, it's probably not a zebra. It's probably just a horse. And I think that's where we are. The Hotez thing is interesting. And for listeners that don't know who um, Peter Hotez is, he is a vaccine researcher and scientist that also lives in Texas. And Joe Rogan this morning, or maybe it was late last night, challenged Peter Hotez onto the show to debate RFK Jr. on vaccines and offered $100,000 to the charity of the winner's choice. And then a bunch of private equity bros quote tweeted Joe Rogan and said, I'll raise the stakes to 250 to $1 million. And I'm curious where you stand on this, Steve, because it's a tricky one. Like if a Holocaust denier invited me on to debate them about whether or not the Holocaust happened, I would say that is insane. It's why I have absolutely zero respect on the record saying this for Lex Friedman, because he had Kanye West on to debate the Holocaust. However, I don't think that having a conversation about vaccines is as outrageous as debating the Holocaust. I think particularly on the heels of the opioid crisis, there are a lot of people, Steve, that don't get paid to do what we do, which is read and think about science all day, that are rightfully very confused. So it's a tough one to me. Like, should Hotez go on? If I were asked, should I go on to have a debate? I don't know the answer. On the one hand, I think, no, it's just feeding oxygen to batshit crazy people. On the other hand, I think that like maybe there are some minds that could be changed because again, I want to come back to this. I'm very judgmental against the purveyors of this bullshit because I think they're doing it as a grift to make money and get status. However, I think very well-meaning people that don't think about this all day could be very rightfully confused as to why are we trusting pharmaceutical companies with these vaccines? So I, th- I think this is a good question to ask, ask and ponder, and I don't think there's a good answer, but I'd frame it in, in, in a couple different ways. First off, you mentioned the current COVID vaccines, but as I mentioned at the beginning, RFK Jr. and in this podcast is talking not just about the newer ones, which admittedly we have less years of research on. He's talking about ones that we have literal decades of research and testing of the exact conspiracies that RFK Jr. you know surmises and we have again it's bunk right there's reams of data so that what that tells me is is this takes it to another level because that tells me that RFK Jr. is professing the same ideas since the year 2000 and despite 20 plus years of research hasn't changed his views yeah, I think that's a good I think that's a really important good point. So what you're so, saying is like he's not only saying come debate the Holocaust, he's also saying like 
Mussolini was good and Genghis Khan was, should win a Nobel Peace Prize. Right. Like there's a difference. Like I have a little more sympathy to someone who says, you know, I I don't think the MMR vaccine caused autism because of the data in there, but I don't quite trust the COVID vaccines. Like I, I, I think that's a more, you know, maybe not a scientifically valid approach right now, but it's a more willing debate. I think in good faith, I'm going to use the words you can in good faith, have that opinion. Exactly. And I think that's where we look at this debate is with RFK Jr. and Hotez and especially as Rogan as the moderator. If you look at some of the things he's tweeted, it's been kind of crazy. Um, That tells me that you're walking into a debate that isn't in good faith. And generally when you do that, what happens is you have someone with RFK Jr. who doesn't subscribe to the same reality that you do, who doesn't subscribe to the same levels of evidence that you do. So you're not debating, you know, facts and evidence. You're having one person who's saying, here's the research, here's what the science says, and another person who just can completely make up whatever they want and, you know, say it with authority and overwhelm you do the gish gallop overwhelm you with arguments and you have as the moderator not someone who's stepping in and fact checking and bringing it back but someone who is in joe rogan in the last year couple years has gone down the conspiracy rabbit hole further and further who has a bias towards what rfk jr is saying so i i think that a date debate on covid vaccines between you know two informed you know, scientists maybe with slightly different views would be wonderful. But I think if you take someone who is a known conspiracy, again, not just vaccines, HIV and AIDS, you know, Wi-Fi causing cancer, 5G conspiracy, Bill Gates putting microchips in us, even though Elon Musk wants to put microchips in us. Like those are the, that's the level of kind of delusion that he is at. If you go in with that, you're, you're legitimizing them. I think, you know, if you want to have this debate, it's got to be, A, I think it should be with someone else. But B, if you're having it with RFK Jr., you need a moderator with some intelligence and authority to be able to keep it on track and fact-checked as you're going along. You know, I one more thing, and I'll turn it back over to you, Brad, as I think more important, you know, if, if Joe Rogan actually cared about the accuracy of this, he would take the three hours that RFK Jr. spewed on his podcast, and he would invite, you know, legitimate scientists who are independent thinkers with good backgrounds that people trust. And he would say, hey, let's let's break down every claim he said and tell me what the accuracy is. And that would be finding the truth. And then you could, again, you could come back and have RFK Jr. try and defend that if you'd like. But you know, he's not going to do that because the debate in this sense is is no different than, I don't know if you remember this from, gosh, probably 10 years ago. It was when you'd often have, um, you know, uh, evangelical fundamentalists debate like Bill Nye on evolution and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, maybe it's a little entertaining, but you're not going to change the minds of some evangelical fundamentalists. So the debate kind of, all it does is give them a platform versus like find some sort of consensus or evidence or reality. All right. So there's good stuff here. And the, I agree with you. Um, and I don't think that Hotez should come on and debate for that reason. 
uh, at least not on the terms that like Joe Rogan is the moderator to your point. I think something else that's so insidious about Joe Rogan in particular is he creates the illusion of serious fact-checking during the show. So when RFK Jr. made the claim that Wi-Fi disrupts mitochondria, which is just a buzzword, RFK Jr. has no idea what mitochondria does or means, at least I don't think so, um, Joe Rogan calls in his producer to do the real-time fact-check, and they pull up an article that ex- seems extremely science with footnotes and studies show this and that and the blood-brain barrier, radiation, and all this is you know all these various very um, complex sounding claims, and then he's like, "Whoa, I didn't know." You know, classic Joe Rogan. Whoa, Wi-Fi. We should get rid of Wi-Fi. Somebody on the internet looked a little bit deeper and you know used Google to type in some of those exact claims to see where this quote unquote scientific paper came from, and it came from an organization that is an offshoot of RFK Jr.'s. Save the Children from Vaccines Fund. So you're literally citing the research of a conspiracy think tank to fact check a conspiracy, which is just not how it works. But the way that Rogan does it, it makes it seem so serious and it makes it seem so real where a well-meaning person that doesn't spend all day thinking about this could easily fall for the trap. So I wanted to call that out. Finally, I think the last thing that's worth discussing is the precarious place that this puts science as an enterprise in. And to me, this is probably the most important part of this conversation. Science is self-correcting over the long haul. It gets things wrong in the short term, but over the long term, it works because it is constantly asking how might we be wrong, trying to invalidate what we think is true for something better. So science very rarely says this is unequivocally true. Science speaks in terms of probability. The challenge is when science speaks in terms of probability, it opens up the floodgates for grifters. So if someone were to say, we have 96% certainty that the mRNA vaccines have made an enormous difference in stopping the severity and the spread, because they do stop spread, just not all the way of this pandemic, and we're 4% uncertain. Well, what would end up happening? The grifters would come in and say, oh, Fauci's 4% uncertain. Like it's probably actually 8% and 8% a ton and blah, blah, blah. So then what happens? It leads science to double down and to say we are certain. But science is never certain. And sometimes science does get things wrong. So now when science says that it's certain and gets something wrong, well, then the grifters can come in and say, see, they told you that they were certain and and they weren't so certain they were wrong. So if you have in bad faith actors looking to take advantage of the inherent uncertainty of science, they are so much in an advantaged position to do so because science can't win. It either forces science to claim certainty on things that are inherently uncertain, or if science says, hey, we're pretty certain, but we're not, then that also opens up the floodgates. And you can always follow the money because RFK Jr. in his Save the Children He wants to run for president. He wants fame. I guess follow the money and follow the status. Every single one of these bro podcast hosts that comes out with this complex stuff of questioning science, they all are affiliated with supplement companies. Every single one of them. Follow the money. Let's question science. Let's not take the vaccines, 
but let's take the D12 plus zinc oxide combo for immune boosting. So it really does put science in a crappy position. And I think ultimately we have three choices. We accept that the current for-profit competitive pharmaceutical landscape has some incentives that are misaligned and is going to miss and miss badly from time to time. And we're satisfied with it. Number two, we say we should not have a profit motive in drug development, and it should all be at the governmental level and ideally an international consortium of the best scientists working together. And we should reward them financially, but also with prestige. That is where I stand. I think that dementia, Alzheimer's, we'd have a lot more progress if instead of having seven companies working on their own secrets, they all work together. The third option is to say, I don't trust the pharmaceutical companies. I don't trust the government, but bring on aisle 12 of CVS. I'll take the Brad and Steve growth equation supplement. And I can understand why some people end there. My hope is that this conversation has brought to light that of all the imperfect options, that is the most imperfect. A hundred percent agree. I think that's that's spot on. I think that's how you have to frame it is science is not perfect. That's not what we're saying. But over the long haul, it course corrects and get things right at a much higher degree than anything else we've any sort of other thing we've invented right now. So it's the best we've got. And what we should focus on, to your point, is how do we make sure that the incentives align with what's best for health and well-being and accuracy, et cetera. And that, to me, hints at like more regulation and you know things like that to make sure that we're staying on track, not going the opposite direction, which is the supplement world, which is less regulation, which as any athlete or coach will tell you, is if you or if you look at the data, looking at the the contamination rate of supplements, it's twenty five percent, one in four. Yeah, it's astronomical, and this is often serious, you know, contamination. So, is that what you is that what we want? <laughs> of course not. So, to me, again, it comes back to you know sticking with science and the process and refining it. And the one thing I'd also say is that. I think in our modern kind of social media world, what it does is it incentivizes a extreme takes to build an audience like the Joe Rogan RFK Jr. podcast. Um, and then B, it incentivizes well-meaning, you know, health people not to engage in the most tricky debates or the most tricky subjects, you know, and I'll call it out like the, the big podcasters in health like uh, Andrew Huberman or Peter Atia, like Peter Atia danced around the COVID vaccine, but neither of them has really gone and said, forget the COVID vaccine, like all vaccinations, right? The old school anti-vaxxers, they haven't kind of gone into that realm. Why? Because whenever you do that and challenge people's assumptions and beliefs that don't know better, you lose followers. But it's those people who probably, if done right, can have the biggest impact on, you know, getting people some sort of scientific literacy so that they can understand and evaluate and see the process and not jump from conspiracy to conspiracy. And the last thing I'd say on this is... Wait, can I interject real quick there, Steve? Yep. On, on those two in particular? Because they're, they're arguably the biggest um, online influencers with authority 
when it comes to health and longevity. Uh, Peter Atia, I think, has really softened up in a big way. In his book, he talks about how vaccines are like miraculous developments that have advanced health and longevity more than anything. I think he could be more vocal like on a day like today on the internet. But I think what Peter would tell you is I used to be vocal on the internet and get into internet fights and I became like almost suicidally depressed. So that's not my my best use of time. Um, that's up to him. I think Andrew Huberman, on the other hand, does spend a ton of time on the internet, is happy to be on the internet. And I think that where he falls short is he will often say like, here's the data, it's still uncertain. Which it is to some degree, because again, science is always uncertain, but where he could go further, and I wish he would, is to say that, yes, it's uncertain, but it's a lot more certain than A, the whole supplement thing, but that's very hard, I think, for podcasters to do because oftentimes they're in partnership developing or sponsored by all these supplements. And we're not totally against supplements here either. Go back a few episodes. We had um, Greg uh, Greg Lopez from... Um, what is it? Examine.com to talk about like the best supplements and certifications for supplements. So it's not all supplements by any means, but um, yeah, I think that then, then what you, where, where someone like that, I think could do more is to say that here's what is certain. If you're not vaccinated against COVID, you have a significantly higher chance of getting very sick, dying and or developing long COVID based on the current available data. Number two, though we might be uncertain about science for things like MMR or not for MMR, we're not uncertain at all. Like whatever, if there's, so let's, let's say that there's like a one-tenth of a percent that you could argue in good faith. I can't do this because I think we're certain, but let's say that there's one-tenth of a percent or one one-hundredth of a percent you could argue that even MMR vaccines like are causing harm. Okay. Well, what's the, like, what's, what's the, so what, what else are you going to do? Get measles, mumps, and rubella? Well, that's going to freaking kill you or paralyze you or, or debilitate you for life. Are you going to take Alex Jones, like literal supplement that is um, like the anti-vax supplement, but take this and you'll be protected from MMR? So that's the conversation that I wish we could have instead of, to me, dancing around it and not wanting to isolate members of an audience by saying like, well, it's kind of uncertain. A- absolutely. And that's what I'm, I was trying to get at is especially, again, when I bring it back is like things like MMR you know, other vaccines around that is, is that's where I think a lot of the damage can occur because we have higher degree of certainty and, you know, it's 20 years, 25 years later and RFK Jr. And, you know, Joe Rogan, et cetera, are promoting, you know, things that have a very high degree of certainty and the downfall of that. And we have data on this as, as well as what happened is you saw, increases significant increases in things like measles <laughs> that that like caused a lot of harm and deaths all because like somebody got it completely wrong and fabricated things and then spread that fabrication and i think that's where we're we're at right now is when we keep spreading things like that it's not just innocent oh i'm just asking questions no it's it's like leading towards ill health and death. And the other thing that I would say is the last thing on this is you can tell the grifters and conspiracy theorists because they never, they never do the work to in the realm of science by collecting data, supporting research to, you know, go back and forth in legitimate peer reviewed studies. 
because that's how we find answers. That's how we find get closer and closer to the truth. Instead, they go and rant on podcasts and tell you all science is bad and all the data is wrong and it's a big conspiracy and everybody's out to get them. They never, they never use the tools of science because they know that like things will fall apart. Yeah. And I think that also there's a big difference between building an audience and getting attention and representing accurately the current state of knowledge on these topics. So mental illness, particularly anxiety, depression, OCD, who wants to listen to a three-hour podcast on SSRIs that have been around for 45 years? Probably no one. But do a podcast on psychedelics or some new supplement or new molecular compound, and you could have a whole month of interesting programming. When in fact, I was just talking to a group of therapists that I consult with, um, most people should start with an SSRI if they're going to go the route of some sort of external compound for mental health. And what ends up happening is a lot of people now will come in and say, I need to do psychedelics. I need to take, you know, a schwanger root and these other things. And they, they refuse to take an SSRI. And there's a lot of suffering that probably results from that. So it's really, really tricky because the things that drive grifters are clearly anti-science and the things that drive in good faith, well-meaning, um, health and longevity influencers kind of operate against the basics because the basics just like aren't that enticing to attention and the currency that you trade in to make a living on the internet is attention. So I don't know the answer. I don't think that we're necessarily heading for a dystopia. I think that what Steve and I tried to do is live by our own values. It's why we're having this podcast. I mean, I've got a book coming out. Y'all hear way more about that later in a couple months. Like I should not be engaging in this topic on the internet if my goal was to sell books because I'm not going to win any new people over and I'm going to lose a whole bunch. But I think you kind of have to be values driven if you're going to play in this space. Um, otherwise, you're playing some other game. And if you're playing the money or fame game, the grift. If you're playing the attention game, you're going to skirt around the basics. Um, if you're playing, know your values and try to live in alignment with them and do it to the best of your ability, knowing that we're all flawed and imperfect, I think you have the best chance of making a difference in whatever it is that you're doing. Cause if Steve and I wanted this podcast to blow up, I mean, I could tell you exactly how to do it. I would be like, you know, I think RFK jr is way off base in the extreme of his claims, but some of them are actually really interesting. And maybe we need more people like RFK jr questioning science because the number one rule of science is to constantly ask yourself, like, how might you be wrong? So why is science so scared of RFK Jr.? I mean, if you're kind of being like, huh, that kind of makes sense. Exactly. Like it's not that hard to say something that on its face makes a lot of sense that inherently is very dangerous when taken out of context. To Steve's point, you've got someone that is a serial grifter that still pr promotes this old Andrew Wakefield paper that vaccines cause autism, which has done more harm than any cooked scientific paper that literally was recalled from every single journal because he made up the data. He went into Excel and typed thousands of rows of data and said, look at this data I collected. Okay. Like you cannot get worse from that. So yeah, asking how science might be wrong, admitting the uncertainty of science makes a whole lot of sense if it's in good faith. And it is so clear with this current wave of grifters that it is not in good faith. And my hope 
back to Peter Atia if he wants to engage online, to Andrew Huberman, who seems to be very online, to these people that fancy themselves as thoughtful, that want people to explore and understand more science, is that instead of shying away from these topics, they dive into them and not just at the level of, hey, science is uncertain, people can look at the data and come to their own conclusions, but hey, science is uncertain, I've studied this to the level to become a professor, a PhD, a physician, whatever it is, based on that, let me explain to you where we have the highest degree of certainty and by what magnitude. And I think we can trust the public with those conversations. And I've been harping a little bit on Atia and Huberman, and then politically we've kind of harped on the right. And I think the left is guilty of this too. I think the left is really quick to be like, how dare you question science? It works. Listen to us. And I kind of get that and I'm sympathetic to it because we discuss like the minute that you open up the littlest, um, the littlest crevasse, it just gets flooded with grifters. But I think a long game to say, we're certain, listen to us, will fail because science is going to be wrong some percentage of the time. So ultimately, I think the answer is something that Steve, you've tweeted about a lot, which is like, we need to educate people in science literacy. We need to do this in school. We need to help people identify and call out grifters so that we can have serious conversations. And I know the public intellectuals that we admire the most do a really good job of this. I'm thinking of Jonathan Haidt and Zainab Tefechki. So like Zainab Tefechki can say that the whole early don't wear masks because if you touch the mask and then you touch your face, you'll get COVID. Zainab's point from the get-go is like, well, if the COVID's on your mask, then you didn't inhale it. So clearly the masks are working. Um, That's nonsense. She was able to do that in a very thoughtful way and fight the system on that. But she didn't become a serial contrarian because she realized that science missed there, but otherwise in regards to the pandemic got a lot right. We've said, at least I've said, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that I think that it's impossible to know because we don't have data on what would have happened. But I think that we closed schools too aggressively for too too long. And I was wrong about that. Again, impossible to know because we don't know how the pandemic would have spread without school closures. I think initial school closures, while we figured this stuff out, made a lot of sense. But I think now you look at the mental health burden, you look at loneliness, all of these carry-on effects. Like I think that was a mistake of the public health community, or at least it might have been a mistake. That doesn't mean that I'm going to say that these people are acting in bad faith, you know, fire Fauci, all this stuff. I'm going to say no. It's a really hard freaking situation. Let's learn from it and adapt moving forward. And that's where I wish more people could wind up. And I think that's what it comes down to. Science is about challenging in the right ways, but it's also about going where the evidence demands and updating your beliefs. And that part really centers it as if you're a good faith actor, then if the evidence is overwhelming and it demands it, you're going to change your beliefs. (laughs) You're going to change and say, hey, I was wrong on this point. We could, we probably should have done X, Y, and Z. And when I see people don't do that, as example, RFK Jr. with his, you know, anti-vax from MMR, autism, et cetera, for 25 years, what that tells me is, is a bad faith actor. So isn't after actual finding something to help with, you know, or help understand the rise of autism or whatever else you have you. It's about, you know, this, this grifting proliferation of BS to get them attention, et cetera. And I think that's the key. So all, all I would add on this is if you're going to take anything away from this is, you know, are the people you let you're listening to, 
are they willing to adjust their beliefs as the evidence shifts? If they aren't, you probably shouldn't be listening to them. They're probably grifting. All right. So in the spirit of doing this, because I was writing some down to, to put our own skin in the game, and you can maybe think of some lie talk, um, let's go through some of the big areas where we were wrong. We were publicly wrong, and we've publicly adjusted our beliefs. So I can go first because I've got a couple of recent ones. So I mentioned school closings. I think that I, based on the evidence that I was reading, I thought that school closings were a good idea for a longer duration than now I think they needed to be closed during the pandemic. So that's something I think I was wrong on. Something else, and our boy Peter Atia, we're going to bring up. I disagree with Peter Atia, and I think he's wrong on a lot of his um, medicine 3.0 primary prevention. Something I now think that he's right on is the importance of getting one's cholesterol as low as tolerably possible. So I would have said that's an overreach, that's focusing on one mechanism. I've updated my belief there. I think more people should probably be on statins. Now, I'm not a physician. I'm just a book writer that knows some stuff about public health, so don't take this as medical advice. And then um, the third area that I wouldn't say I'm wrong on, but I think my beliefs have matured is in terms of medication for various behavioral and mental health issues. And I think that lots of people are overtreated and lots of people are undertreated and a few people are treated appropriately. So let's take a lightning bolt issue, which is ADHD. I've now come to believe, and maybe I always believe this, and I've just become more mature about how I can communicate it. No, I think old me would have been like, kids just need to play more. ADHD is a ploy of pharmaceutical companies and psychiatrists to a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Now what I would say is that, yes, kids need to play more. Yes, ADHD is overdiagnosed. Yes, there's no way that rates of ADHD changed so quickly. Like, There's no genetic mutation that can explain that over 20 to 30 years. All of that I still think is true. And I think that there is some proportion of the population, probably 3 to 5%, you could argue, of kids that do benefit tremendously from ADHD medication and no amount of recess or quote-unquote better parenting or anything is going to help those kids. So those are two issues where I've definitely changed my mind. One where I've changed my mind a little and I think hopefully now I communicate more maturely about it. Oh, yeah. and weight, weightlifting is much better than running. How could I forget to throw that in? Yeah, that's, that's like the biggest mind change. I was an endurance, I was a wannabe endurance athlete for 12 years. Now I'm a wannabe powerlifter. And man, was I wrong for 12 years. Come yeah, to the I, dark side. I think that I think that case is more in line with RFK Jr. conspiracy. Uh, there's there's no way that's the truth. Um, other things. I think I was, you know, similarly, I think I was wrong on schools going back. You know, I mean, my wife's a teacher. So I think a little bit of it is like there's unknown and you want me to send my wife in with no protections, understanding, et cetera. And and others and which she actually had a teacher who, who passed away um, part, partly because of COVID. So I think that came into it as well. Um, but I do think there was uh, better ways to handle it and to get kids back in school quicker that we should have done, which we didn't. Um, I think mental health, like I think it's more complicated than I, similar to you, it's more complicated than I gave it credit for. Uh, I still don't have my entire head wrapped around it, but I think it's way more complicated than just even being like, well, the latest uh, research on drug X, Y, and Z says do this. I think we're at 
more of a beginning understanding of mental health than some other domains of, of medicine. Um, going back a long ways, in my early days, I thought walks were useless and not exercise. And now I love walks and I think that they can be a vital part of an exercise program. You know, uh, college Steve would have been like, why walk when you can run? Um, two other things that I think are important similarly in the exercise running world is training. I thought, I think I thought more of the line that no, there wasn't one perfect thing that it mattered a whole hell of a lot. And like, if you got the workouts, right, it, it mattered a lot more. Now I don't think it does. I think, you know, you're going to get the, you're going to get to 98% as long as the training is good, good enough. Um, and then the last thing that I don't know if I changed my mind completely, but I have a different look on is the uh, Castor Semenya DSD athletes, where during while well, that was going on in Semenya, I was very much of the mind of this is really unfair. Um, you know, she has an advantage. I still think that she has an advantage, but I feel a lot more sympathy and empathy towards her and her situation. And think that eh, it probably could have been handled a lot better way, especially in light of, um, you know, the I guess the way I would put it is to me, the trans athlete issue is much more simpler than the Castor Semenya issue. And um, I don't think we treat it as such. Yeah, I was going to say that's like the third rail because is we've kind of publicly gone back and forth on me and you, at least Steve, on the Internet is um, I think that the trans issue is actually still pretty complex, but in comparison to the DSD issue, it is so simple. Um, and I think that like, you know, talk about the extreme edge case, it's the DSD. And for those that don't know, DSD is disorders of sexual differentiation, um, meaning that you might have external organs that present as one sex, but internal um, organs and hormones that manifest as the other sex. Um, and that is extremely, extremely thorny when it comes to elite sport. So anyways, thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that, um, we did a couple things. As Steve said, we hope that we outlined some of the craziness and confusion. We hope that we gave you some communication tools that you can take back to your own community. Um, and we hope that we helped you have an open mind regardless of where you sit. Clearly, if you're someone that's sympathetic to RFK Jr.'s point of view, hopefully we addressed some of the reasons why you ought not to be. On the other hand, and this is probably where many more of our listeners lie, if you're someone that says like the establishment and experts in science is always right, hopefully we also helped you consider that, you know, if we're going to be honest, science and the establishment isn't always right, but no one is always right. And what we really need is better ways to communicate the complexity of these issues um, to the lay people so we don't end up with, you can't trust pharma, you can't trust the government, but I'm going to take nine of the supplements and aisle nine of Walgreens. So with that, we'll catch you for our regular programming this coming Wednesday. Um, we'll be back with part two of our conversation with Yael Schumbrun on relationships and um, until then, please share this podcast. We think it's one of the more important ones. It's a little raw. It's unedited because we wanted to get it up ASAP. Um, but yeah, we think it's meaningful. So hopefully we're able to add something to the conversation that is more signal than noise. So with that, we'll catch you Wednesday. And thanks for tuning in.